Hey, you guys, this is Kanchan Koya, and we are live on Mom Light, the podcast. My first ever interview, and I am so excited, I can hardly contain myself. It's a total pinch me moment. The podcast is up. I have the most amazing guest for you today, my first show. And uh, yeah, let's do it. So, um, yes, so today on the podcast for Mom Light, we have the wonderful, fabulous, inspiring Rini Jane. Rini is the founder and chief storyteller at GoZen and is recognized as a pioneer in marrying technology and child psychology. Through her writing, product invention, and development, masterclasses for parents and children's advocacy. She works to build the emotional intelligence of kids, including resilience, empathy, kindness, and critical thinking. Rini is a certified life coach and holds an MA in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a wife and a mom and a wonderful friend and can often be found reading a comic book, doodling, or sipping a cup of coffee in a quiet nook in LA. Rini, welcome to Mom Light. I am so honored to be here, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. Um, the honor is mine. The pleasure is mine. And thank you for getting on a podcast where I kind of don't know what I'm doing, but so excited nonetheless. Um, you are natural. This is going to be a great conversation. Yes, I'm so, so stoked to dive in. So Rini and I met in 2008 in New York City. And right when I met her at her house, I just felt this intense, vibrant light and energy and vibration. And since then, Rini and I have become dear friends. Um, She's always inspiring me both personally and professionally. She has really, really um, inspired my journey as an entrepreneur, as a mompreneur, and I couldn't think of a better guest to bring on the show um, to launch Mom Light than her. And so I'm really, really, really excited to bring her wisdom to all of you. Um, so Rini, how are you doing today? How's LA? I'm, so I'm good. <laughs> it's 72 and sunny. I'm happy to say. <laughs> LA is providing. LA. Yes. And I do remember that moment that we met because I opened the door and you said, are you Renee? Woman. And we were, and yes, instant friendship. I corrected the pronunciation of my name and we became instant friends. Yeah, really has been a, it's just been such a gift to know you. Um, so anyway, thank you for that evening, right? That we met. So I want to dive right in because I know that we have so much to cover. And of course, on Mom Light, we are going to be talking about um, moms and helping them find lightness in body, mind, and spirit. That's a lot to cover, I know. But I wanted to start with your childhood, where you grew up, and what was it like for you in terms of your own health and vitality as a child? Did you feel very healthy? Did you feel like you had access to vitality? Did you feel great in your body and mind and spirit as a kid? Tell us a little bit about um, that part of your life. Mm, That's such an interesting question because I think it's hard 
not to look at look at my childhood through the lens of all of the experiences now that I've had as an adult. So I can only, I can't give you the real answer because I'm not a kid anymore. I can only give you what I believe to be the answer, which is this. Um, I grew up in a very beautiful, loving, compassionate, light-filled family. Uh, and yet I always felt very heavy, misunderstood, um, and yeah, I think misunderstood is the biggest word that's coming to mind for me. I didn't have the words that you're using. There's no resonance for me from when I was a kid, right? There wasn't light. Um, I wasn't vibrant. Uh, but on the outside, I think I appeared that way. So I very quickly, when I was young, figured out that big people are really uncomfortable when little people don't feel good, right? So I was worried a lot as a kid. There was a lot of internal chronic worrying, you know, what are people thinking of me? What do I, you know, what do they think of the way that I look? What do they think of what I'm saying? I was extremely self-conscious um, and I worried about things that I probably didn't need to worry about. What if someone breaks into our house, you know? Um, what if I don't do well on the test? There was a lot of worrying and there's a lot of what ifing. And so my parents saw the worry and they reassured me, you know, they gave me love. They told me to trust them. And no matter what my parents did or what they said to me, it didn't help. They loved me, but their love wasn't enough to kind of get rid of that chronic worry. So I felt very heavy inside, but I didn't want that to continue to affect my parents and affect my brother. And so eventually, probably by the age of about eight, I learned how to fake it, for lack of better words. It was pretty easy for me. I put a smile on my face and I lied. How's everything going? How's school? How's friends? How's tests? Fine, 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 fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. You know, and you can fake things for a really long time. But this is what I find that's so interesting about that. When you fake, you know, when you um, deny kind of the dark feelings within, when you don't give them a voice and you numb those things, you also numb the light. So essentially, you become pretty robotic or stoic, right? And so everything is fine, and you kind of become a non-feeling human, which is what happened to me. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the best guest for mom light. <laughs> such a heavy note, because I was not light. Well, you've come a long way, so you're the perfect guest. Yes, yes, wow, yes, so, yes. No, that is I, so beautiful in a way, you know, uh, especially the part where you said you become stoic because sometimes I feel like we use that word in a positive sense. Oh, she's so stoic. She never crumbles under pressure. She, you know, he's so stoic. He never cries or whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah. wow. I, I learned that not to feel basically, to deny, to crush, to avoid, to deny, to run away. And I learned that that was, that was my coping mechanism essentially for the way that I was feeling inside. And it took me till about maybe my mid twenties when um, I was going through a really bad relationship and a really bad breakup. And all of those years of denying how I felt and never learning to cope with challenge just resurfaced at that point. And I started to have these terrible panic attacks, you know, so in one part of my life, I was totally functional. I ended up following this, you know, the 
typical roadmap that your parents want you to follow, which is go to good school and get good grades and, you know, go to college and get a good job. And I did all of that. But on this other part of my life, I never figured out how to deal with challenges. So the first major challenge I faced as an adult, I crumbled you know, and panic attack after panic attack, I eventually ended up in the emergency room, which was probably the greatest gift of my life because I was fighting with the doctor in this ER telling him that I was having a heart attack. And he was like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 24. And he's like, okay, well, you're certainly not having a heart attack, but I'll run the tests. And he came back and he was like, listen, you had a major panic attack. And I've seen you in here before, because I had been in there before, and you need to change your life. And it was the turning point, you know, the, the point where your entire life pivots and you go on a different trajectory, because I basically sent myself to therapy. And that was such an incredible blessing, because I'm lying on the sofa at the therapist, and it was the first time probably in a decade that I allowed myself to feel the feelings that I was having. And as I lay there, I literally just have, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, hey, why isn't it that whatever you're teaching to me right now, these life skills, because that's what you get in therapy, you basically get life skills. Why didn't I learn this as an eight-year-old? If I had a time machine, I would have gone back in time and I would have taught little Rini how to feel her feelings. And, you know, I, I can't do that. So I decided in that moment that this is it. This is my life's work. This is what I want to do. I want to go back and I want to teach kids how to feel and how to navigate through emotions and how not to manage them, but to transform them. Wow, that is powerful. And it's often those inflection points, those moments of deep suffering and total collapse that are the biggest gifts, aren't they? Except it's hard to see that in the moment. Mm. But that's amazing that you can talk about that moment in that way. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, would you say that was kind of your rock bottom when you had those <laughs> panic attacks? They say, you know, you, you've hit rock bottom and then you can go lower <laughs> in whatever struggle you're having. But yeah, do you feel like from then on, it's really been kind of a journey yeah, you know what? It really was my rock bottom and it changed the perspective of my life. And I think one of the big perspective changes that I had was that this relentless pursuit of being happy wasn't the journey that I wanted to be on. And interestingly, you know, along this path, I went back and I think you mentioned in my bio that I have a master's in applied positive psychology, which on the street they call the science of happiness, you know. So it's interesting for me to say that I don't relentlessly pursue happiness. You know, that was that was my big shift and my kind of another aha moment that I have. I decided that in the pursuit of happiness, you often find misery. <laughs> you end up miserable because every five minutes you're like, am I happy? Is this making me happy? Am I happy enough? You know, it doesn't allow for our humanity, the ebb and flow of emotions, which we all have. And so what I go after now really is meaning, right? Am I doing something that is contributing to something greater than myself? And it doesn't always have to be something greater than myself. It doesn't always have to be something, you know, like, am I, am I doing something charitable or am I doing something of service? But 
on a, in a bigger picture, when I look at my life and I look at the work that I do and I look at the family that I'm raising and I look at all of these things, you know, my life essentially, is my life meaningful? Does it matter? And so I changed my pursuit from happiness to meaning and it's really sort of made all the difference. So to answer your question, if that was rock bottom, I have many times, you know, as you know, as my friend personally, or I'll reach out to you and I say, oh my goodness, I'm going through this incredible challenge. So my life is not without dips. It's not without challenges, but I finally have the ability to navigate through those challenges where I didn't have that before. And that's so fascinating because I guess the studies also tell us that the pursuit of meaning actually does result in that long-term happiness that we're all looking for, that deeper contentment, not the happy, like I just bought something new or I'm very comfortable right now. So in a way you are still pursuing happiness, but just a deeper, more more long-lasting version perhaps. Yes, yes, yes. But it's funny when my parents visit, they'll say, how come you always seem so stressed out? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not stressed out. I'm pursuing meaning. And my mom's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the studies that you see on parents and parenthood. It's like parents are less happy right, than people who don't have kids. However, they have a greater sense of meaning. Yes. So when I think about my audience, most of them are mothers. Um, Some are aspiring mothers and some are just women looking to find more wellness and health and vitality and lightness. And so, you know, just going back to those emotions that you experienced as a kid that stayed with you through your 20s. Um, I imagine many people feel that level of anxiety on a daily basis. Now, I personally do not. I'm just not wired that way. I tend to have a really positive mindset. Of course, I go through phases where I might feel really anxious. But can you tell us a little bit about your understanding of how hardwired that is and how people can just kind of be tapped into where they fall on the spectrum so that they can take action if they are in a more compromised sort of, you know, on a more compromised end of the spectrum, if you will, of sort of feeling anxiety. Yeah, you know, I mean, as you probably already know, for those of you who are listening, there are so many different variables that contribute to stress and anxiety, right? Whether that be environmental or biological, is it learned behavior? You know, am I simply just coming into this world with this natural disposition? Um, and some and some science shows that maybe it's half and half, you know. But what that tells us is that there is a big, big portion that is within our control. And so one of the things, if you are listening to this and you have experienced anxiety in your life, whether you're experiencing it now or if you've had it when you were younger, if you have kids that experience it, I think one of the huge myths that we've been operating under for such a long time is that this is bad for us, right? And that the goal is basically to minimize it or get rid of it, to stress less. And so one of the things, the premises that I start with, with kids and with grownups and with myself, is that the goal is not to get rid of part of who we are. Stress and anxiety is part of who we are. It's there for a reason. Every emotion has a purpose. So whether that be guilt right? Which is kind of like a moral compass when we feel guilty, whether that be anger, which helps us protect our boundaries, or whether that be worry, which can have a lot of benefits, including protection, right? Worry is the reason that we don't step into the street and get hit by a bus. 
So the first thing is changing the premise. It's not, the premise shouldn't be to be stress-free or to stress less. What I say is that we should strive to stress better, right? We should strive to use it and hear it. So all emotions, whether you're feeling anxious or, or joyful, whatever the emotion is, they're communication tools, they're messengers. And so when I'm working with kids, depending on the age of the kids, sometimes I say to them, it's like a text message to your soul, right? Do you want to not, like, do you get it? Do you ever get a text message and not read it? It's the thing that catches your attention, right? You hear the little ding. Well, that little ding is being sent by your feelings. And so the first thing is, is not to turn away from, from it, which is what, for so many different reasons we do when it comes to what we consider to be uncomfortable emotions right? We turn away from them. We try to distract ourselves. We try to get away from them. But the goal is really to be able to turn in and tune into them because they're sending us a message. So what is the message, right? What is the message of the anxiety? What is the message of the stress? Where do we feel it in our body? And what is it trying to say? Because I think what's happening with us is we're just getting emotions wrong. They're not meant to come into our body and remain with us, right? As messengers, they're meant to drop something off, a message, and leave. So when people say, I am anxious, I will often say to them, you're having the feeling that you're anxious. You're having the thought that you're anxious because these things are transient. So again, just to kind of summarize, you know, because I've been a little long-winded, um, one, the goal is not to get rid of the stress. The goal is to stress better. Two, it's a communication tool that's trying to send you a message, often about maybe some change that you need in your life, right? And three, all of these things can be used as a, all of these things, meaning feelings, can be used as a positive catalyst for change. So I can tell you from my work with kids that as soon as you tell them that there's nothing wrong with having stress, there's nothing wrong inherently with being anxious, they're floored. What do you mean there's nothing wrong? I thought I was a bad kid. I often hear I thought I was a bad kid. Oh my goodness, it's heartbreaking. It You're is. not a bad kid. You're human. You know, again, it's part of our humanity. What I find so powerful about your work with Gozen and everything that you've just said is um, yes, it's directed at children and it's, you know, packaged so beautifully for kids. Gozen.com um, is such a powerful resource. I have had my kids, my, my seven-year-old, almost seven-year-old watch videos on there. There's just incredible tools. Um, so, so revolutionary, revolutionary and innovative. But I always find that it's translatable to me or, you know, my friends or us moms, adults. So um, I think even though we, you know, you're, the, the conversation right now is about moms and heaviness that they may feel, whether it's anxiety, but I think the solution, telling yourself that you're having this feeling and it doesn't define you and it's okay and it doesn't make you weak or somehow a liability is so powerful and so important and so freeing, right? So I love that. And for any of you listening who have kids with anxiety, you must check out Gozen. It really is just an incredible, incredible resource. Um, and clearly I'm learning stuff from it too that I can apply to myself. And I'm not a kid anymore, or maybe I am. 
We're all a kid inside. We're yeah. Thank you. Inside. Thank you. It's yeah, it can be incredibly healing for our inner child, right? Um, but they're life skills and we are just all a work in progress as we're going through this life. So yeah, we often hear that when parents are going through programs and goes on with their kids. They're like, oh my goodness, I'm actually using this for myself. And it's like, yes. of course, of course, you know, of course. Yeah. Right. Um, so when you say stress better, um, mm-hmm. pretty much the most common thing I hear when I talk to mothers, whether it's as a health coach or just my friends, everybody seems overextended, overwhelmed and stressed. And we're living, some of us are living with more magnified versions of these emotions, maybe because of our hard wiring or other factors like you described, or some of us are just kind of burying it um, or find, have found healthy coping mechanisms. Could you give us an example of how we as mothers can stress better in our mm-hmm. lives? Mm-hmm. The first thing I think that we need to do is know that we are enough, Right. Um, I think that the practice of just saying that I am enough and I am doing the best that I can with the resources that I have is so incredibly important. It sounds very simplistic, uh, but I think it's extremely powerful, right? Because we are often defining ourselves and our children are often defining themselves by particular experiences, uh, and they are quantifying things, especially a lot more than we did as as kids. But for example, how many likes do I have on a post? How many people are in this particular group, right? There's a lot more quantification. When we were kids, the quantification was grades, um, maybe GPA, maybe SAT scores, but there's a lot more quantification. And I think this goes into momhood as well, right? How many things am I able to balance at one time? And you know, deep down inside, you're probably doing them all poorly, but can you balance? Can you keep all of the plates spinning at once? And so, listen, we have come into this world with an incredible abundance, an incredible light, an incredible energy, and it never, ever goes away. We come into the world enough, and none of the experiences that we have in life are going to make us any more than what we came into the world with. So we can just pause no matter what we are doing, no matter how many plates we're spinning, you know, no matter how many balls are in the air, and we can say, I am enough. So one actionable thing that you can do that I always recommend for everyone, whether it be a grown-up or a kid, is to take a strength survey. So they've done, you know, one of the most powerful pieces of research that's come out of the field of positive psychology has been on character strengths. And what (laughs) these researchers did is really interesting. They got together 50 social scientists and they studied 3,000 years of cultural texts. So this was anything from scientific texts, research-based texts, to religious texts, to hallmark cards. And what they were looking for are the character strengths that are valued across time and across cultures. And they came up with 24 different strengths. Some of these are humor, courage, um, leadership, right? So things that would be familiar to you. That they created these surveys or these classification systems where you can take a questionnaire, essentially, you know, for adults, it's something like 240 questions. And this will produce a list of your signature strengths. 
you know, your strengths that really you come into the world with and that you hone over time. And what this does for moms and what it does for kids is they're able to see their, you know, their light in a different way right? So rather than just saying that I am enough and, you know, I have this light inside of me, which can be incredibly powerful, they can say, yeah, I'm really resourceful. So then the next time you face a challenge, whether that be you're feeling depleted, right? Or so one of my strengths is humor, for example. And when I feel depleted, I often use that humor, right? So you can take a strengths-based problem-solving approach to whatever you're going through. So when you ask me, you know, one of one of the best things to do to stress better is to really know what's inside of you and to really lean on those strengths. Because I think we spend a long time kind of hammering away and trying to chipping away at the things that are going wrong with us. And we don't focus enough on the resources and the strengths that we have. I love that. Where can people take this test? Go, uh, so, yeah, so yeah, there's a bunch of them. Um, the one I recommend is the VIA, the Values in Action, and that's at viacharacter.org. Okay, I will put that in the show notes for Yay. people. I did take that test, I have to say, and I was um, kind of surprised in a good way. And I was also feeling bad why I didn't have the other strengths. <laughs> yeah, I know. I that's just our, we're so wired that way, right? I know. And you know, the point you were making about I am enough um, it must not be a coincidence that literally as of two weeks ago, that has been my morning meditation mantra, something that I just say to myself because I was feeling really overwhelmed by all the things I was meant to be doing and feeling like I was doing them so poorly. And that was giving me so much stress, even though I'm not a stressor, as I said before, but I guess I am in moments. And yeah, I just said, I'm going to say this over and over again, just to hardwire it into my subconscious. I am enough. And everything then that I do comes from a place of creativity and joy and abundance and wanting to, you know, help and inspire and just sing my song, right? Rather than having to prove, having to do something so that I am enough. And just that shift might take an entire lifetime to be fully embedded in my psyche just because of the deep conditioning that we come with. Um, so I think that is simple, but so, so, so powerful and important to keep in mind. Amazing. I saw um, they have these temporary tattoos that you can put anywhere like on your hand that say, I am enough. And I'm like, yes, every person and every mom especially needs one of these. Amazing. And yeah, totally. I need I need one. I'm going to put a sticker on my computer. Tattoo it on your head. <laughs> yes. So when you work with a lot of kids, obviously through Gozen, you probably also work with their parents, often mothers. What is your read on the biggest challenge that you think moms are facing when it comes to really finding, shining that inner light? Um, you know, like I said, most moms I find are feel, feel overextended. And yeah, so what would be your sense of like, what you sense is the biggest challenge? I think one of the biggest challenges is moms feeling like, you know, speaking of enough, that they are not doing enough for their kids and they're being taken from every place in the world that gives them meaning. So it's really this feeling of guilt then. 
I want to be with my kids, but then I want to do this other meaningful stuff. And then I want to have these friendships, right? So this feeling that you're not doing the best that you can. Um, however, I have yet to run into a mom that is not doing the best that they can with the resources and what they have. You know, I have yet to run into one of those people and I work with lots and lots and lots of different people. So one of the biggest things is really, I think, not positive thinking, but accurate thinking, right? Coming from a place of, of accuracy. Um, and so I, I really think that we need to take a step back and evaluate the inner monologue that's going on with us, because a lot of it is that particular is issue. There is a distortion in what we feel we're giving. You know, I'm able to give so much, but I'm not able to give so much because I have all of these other things going on. Um, yeah, so that I think would be the biggest one. Yeah, that inner dialogue, man, seriously. I remember a situation <laughs> where your advice really helped me. Um, I had just given birth to my to my daughter, Noor, and she had this uh, jaundice thing, which is so common in kids. And it was all those postpartum hormones and everything. And I was so stressed, so um, actually so overcome with guilt as well, because it had something to do with like an, an incompatibility between my blood type and hers and all this stuff. And I obviously went to Dr. Google, which was a really bad idea and got all this horrendous information about how things were heading south and, you know, the worst case scenarios. And I remember vividly, you told me on text because I was in Hong Kong then and you were in New York and you said, you know, look at that, the part of your brain, the part of your mind that is telling you all this negative chatter, wherever it's coming from look at it, like look into its eyes, acknowledge it for all the amazing information it's giving you. And then please ask it to leave the room or something like that. Like have a seat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's almost like you're welcoming it. Um, and you know, yeah, I just find when we're overcome with that negative chatter, when our internal roommate, as I think Ariana Huffington calls it, like, um, you know, the, the super like critical roommate keeps showing up. Um, and I know, speaking of what you just mentioned with moms feeling like they're not enough, not doing enough, somehow messing up their kids, guilty of that, that inner chatter, you know, is that a good sort of tool? Like, should we be doing that more often, really acknowledging the chatter? And then that sort of allows it to lose its power in a way. Yeah, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do is really try to be an observer of our own experience. So, you know, there's an interesting piece of research that has been done over and over again, and it's called the white bear experiment. You may have even heard of it, where they had these research participants talk about their conscious stream of thought. So whatever was going through their mind, they were just supposed to verbalize. And then a group of them were told, and while you're doing this, don't think of a white bear. And if you do think of a white bear, just ring the bell. And so, you know, this group obviously over and over again is thinking of the white bear because they were told not to think of the white bear. So this is like a, you know, a a big study that's come out of the field of thought suppression. And basically, you know, to bullet point the research findings, you can't suppress thoughts, right? You can't run away from them. You can't squash them. You can't deny them because they just come up and rear their ugly head because they need some acknowledgement. So this is a really, really good practice to allow it 
to come into your experience, to separate yourself from it, right? So this is diffusion. You are not your thoughts, right? If you were your thoughts, you'd be 70,000 different things every day, right? That's how many you have. So you're not your thoughts. So I'm having the thought that I'm not a good mother. Hey, what's up thought? Thanks brain for letting me know, you know, and yes, acknowledge it and let it float by. Thoughts and emotions will eventually float by if we allow them to do so and we become an observer of our experience. And really this goes back again to the strengths because if you visualize yourself as, you know, your podcast is called Mom Light, as this lightness of being, what you are, what you hold constantly are those abundance of strengths, right? That light inside of you. And everything else is just a visitor that's passing by in your experience, your thoughts and your feelings, your thoughts and your feelings. And I also think that this is the heart of any meditation practice, to become an observer of your own experience. Indeed. Um, And that is a great segue for us to talk about your meditation practice. You have always been a meditator. And when I asked you to share your morning routine with me before the show, (laughs) you said five minute meditation. And I wanted to talk about that because I feel like there was a time when it was like an hour. So Mm, meditating. Tell us a little bit about your meditation practice and your morning routine and maybe you find lightness in your day, does it? Yeah. So I have had, you know, since becoming a mom, so I have a, um, a six-year-old and a five-year-old. And so, you know, for the past six Those years or so, <laughs> thank you, as are yours. Um, so, you know, after becoming a mom, I was like, oh, well, this one-hour meditation practice is a really <laughs> long time to squeeze into the day with, you know, being with the kids and getting them to school and being a mom and just being a business owner. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really long time. So I had to find different ways to chunk out the meditation. And so I do do five minutes in the morning. Now I have to say that having practiced meditation for a very long time, it's very easy for me to go inside myself. It's very easy for me to slip into a meditative state quite easily. And I believe that just comes from practice. But I wake up in the morning and I will do five minutes of meditation. Um, This is just a very pure form of meditation where I'm not trying to stop my thoughts, by the way. I think this is like one of the biggest myths of meditation that your brain needs to stop. Yes, debunk that myth. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I, I... you don't need to stop your thoughts. In fact, if you know, if I asked you right now, Kanchan, to stop your heart from beating, you probably wouldn't be able to do it as you will not be able to stop your thoughts right from passing by. But what you will be able to do, again, is become an observer of your thoughts instead of becoming so attached to them. And then to be compassionate with yourself, to bring yourself back to whatever your anchor is for your meditation practice. So for those of you who are listening who have never meditated before, you know, one of the biggest reasons that people don't want to sit and meditate is because they say, I can't do that. You know, there's just no way I can stop that racing brain. And so you don't have to. Um, The other thing is, is that it doesn't need to be in my experience in meditating um, and having tried many different types of meditation. You don't always need to sit in some kind of, you know, yoga posture with a perfect, with a perfect back and sitting upright. You shouldn't be sleeping, but there are many, many different forms of meditation. Um, So the types that I practice now is I do a sitting meditation in the morning where I sit down and I'm really just breathing in and breathing out and that is 
it for five minutes in the morning. Um, and then I will do a lot of walking meditation and meditation that I anchor to different things that I have to do during the day. I know this sounds totally ridiculous, but I meditate when I'm brushing my teeth. <laughs> it's like, well, you might I brush as my, well, because yeah, what else are you going to do? <laughs> I brush my teeth twice a day. So I like to have an anchor because I want to get in my meditation practice and yet I don't want it to be an extra thing. I mean, I think it's ironic that we're stressing out about meditating. Oh my goodness, I didn't get my meditation in. <laughs> right, right. Um, yes. So in my morning routine looks like, the, you know, before I go to bed at night, I think about, okay, what are the things that I need to do in the morning? I try to prepare as much as possible because a lot of the days when the kids are in school, it's about lunch prep and you know, um, it's about, you know, getting backpacks and things like that. And it's also about having them be their own humans and trying to take responsibility for their own things and do that stuff. So that's like an added thing where I'm like teaching them. It would be so easy if I were just doing it myself. And then also I try to mentally prepare myself for the unexpected, right? I try to do this before the kids wake up in the morning and I try to do it before I walk back in the door, whatever time of day that might be. Sometimes it's early in the afternoon. Sometimes it's a little bit later. You know, it just kind of depends on the day. I try to prepare myself for the unexpected because what I believe happens is that we have this image in our head of, oh my goodness, I've been gone all day and I miss my kids so much and I'm going to come home and I'm going to open the door and it's going to be like, ah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. hi mom, you know, and sometimes I walk in the door and it's not that. And I've often been called a parenting expert, which makes me cringe because I'm really just a parenting work in progress like everybody else is, you know, and if I put a little camera on my head, <laughs> I would not be in my house, I would not be called a parenting expert anymore. Um, I believe a lot of the practice that I'm doing is really about what's in my control and regulating myself. And so that I know when I walk in the door, I can expect anything then you know, and then I am prepared for that. And I have buffer for that. So that if my kids are clawing each other's eyes out when I walk into the door, then I'm able to show up as the highest version of myself for that situation, which doesn't always happen. But I try. The intention is beautiful. Um, do you feel like your meditation practice helps you prepare yourself or react more mindfully? Yes, I feel like my meditation practice really expands that tiny, tiny little space we have, you know, before we react. I feel like that that is one of the intentions of the practice for myself is to really, you know, that, that magical space that they talk about, I call it minding the gap, but being able to mind the gap between the trigger and then my reaction. Mm -hmm. I remember you talking about minding the gap when I took that incredible course that you ran on anger for parents. Mm -hmm. um, I still use some of those skills and some of that insight and minding the gap was definitely one of them. You know, when you, when you can pause, I mean, if we could pause in many parts of our lives before we reacted, probably be a very different planet. <laughs> It'd be a different world. Yes. It'll be a different world. So you meditate in the morning for five minutes now, and then you try to meditate through the day whenever you get a chance and um, you spend time with your kids. Is there anything else that you do in terms of a daily practice that just helps you feel healthy, vibrant? So I put my kids to bed and when I'm putting them to bed, 
we have a choice of meditation practices that we do together. So myself and the kids, sometimes my husband joins us, sometimes he doesn't, it just depends. So I have been teaching them um, breathing meditations, loving kindness meditation, mantra meditation. So we go through a variety of them. We've been doing the emotional freedom technique or tapping. So they love to do that. And so we have choices, you know, and I don't force the choice and I don't force the meditation if they're not into it. And some days my son feels like crawling on top of me when we're doing <laughs> it, you know, um, but other, day, other days they are really into it. And re- more recently I've been saying, who wants to lead the meditation? This is a really short period of time. Mind you, I, re- I realize that, you know, putting kids to bed can be <laughs> a big drawn out experience depending on who you are, what your the age of your kids are etc. And, and what their ability is to put themselves to bed. But this takes us maybe three to five minutes, you know, and it's a very, very special time for us. It's a bonding time for us. Um, I've done a lot of experimentation. I continue to do so uh, with the meditation. So yeah, it's a really, it helps me. And what the most interesting thing for me in working with kids, whether it be my own kids or other kids, is that they are the best teachers of all. As soon as they embody the skill, they're teaching it back to you in a better way. You know, what about this? Because they're not, they don't have any conditioning. They just are out of the box thinkers naturally. Why don't we do it like this? It's like, I don't know why we don't do it like that because I didn't think of that. (laughs) That's a really good idea. Yeah. And then we kind of squash that out of them, sadly. The goal is not to. Um, do you have any, um, does GoZen host any meditation programs for kids that people can check out? I would love to try with my kids. I don't know about my two-year-old, but we can try. <laughs> <laughs> we have something called Go to the Now. That is our mindfulness program. It's 11 videos. It's pretty concise with 11 different mindfulness go exercises. to the now love it yes go to the now mm. you know i find um just talking about that point of guilt and momhood and especially being an entrepreneur that really if i can just be present with my kids when i'm with them even if it's a very short period of time especially if it's a particularly hectic day it just makes such a difference. They pick up on that, whether you're in the now or not, when you're with them, especially. And so something you talked about in terms of um, a habit or a practice that just makes you feel centered and light and um, your best self is playing with your kids on the floor. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is so powerful for you? It's such an instant connection for them. You know, it's such an instant connection for them because They love to play on the floor up until I would say age 10, 11, you know, they're on the ground, they're building things. Um, Their imagination, I feel like is at its most raw and beautiful when they're doing that. And so if you're able to slip into that in an authentic way, now I know a lot of moms will say, oh my goodness, I hate playing with my kids. I hate playing imaginary games with my kids. I hate when they drag me into play. So I think it needs to come from a place of authenticity. Sometimes you 
if you want to be able to do that and connect with them, then you have to go back to your own childhood and remember what kind of lit you up because that might light you up again, you know, and you might be able to connect with them in that way. But for me personally, I love to get on the ground and play with the kids, even if it's for five minutes, because by the way, for those of you who have really young kids, you probably know this, kids have no sense of time. <laughs> None. Right. They, can't really, I, they, recently they are did. truly in the now. Yes, they are in them now. They have no sense of time. So whether you're spending five super quality minutes with them or 50 minutes with them, they're feeling that, right? So if you have five minutes, spend five minutes with them. You know, if you have longer, spend longer. But a lot of times they just don't know. But what they do know, as you said, is presence. And so I don't have to work to connect with my kids. What did you do at school? Or think of the 50 different ways to say, you know, what did you do at school, which we have lots of different ways. As soon as I'm on the ground and playing with them and engaging them in something that I know that they're already connected to, it's just instant connection. Yeah, and it's really been powerful for me. Um, having learned that from you guys and that course on anger, I find that when my kids are acting out, it's often you know one of the things that's missing is connection. And so I literally will sit down on the floor. I am one of those moms who doesn't really like to play with my kids. I'm going to be honest. I love watching them play. <laughs> I just don't want to be playing with them. But I will sit down on the floor and just be there or engage in some way that feels authentic. And it really shifts things. So I think that is such a simple yet powerful piece of advice. Um, we don't have too much longer and you've given us so much wisdom and so much to work with. But I did want to touch on kind of, we've talked a lot about mental wellness and managing anxiety, stressing better, you know, using these, um, these emotions as messengers and all that amazing stuff. And I just want to talk a little bit about your experience with sort of physical health now that you're a mom in your 40s. And how has, um, I know that, you know, yeah, how has that been for you? Um, how do you feel? And are there some things that you'd like to share that have really kind of helped you move things in a lighter, more vitality-filled direction? Yeah. You know, one of the things that was really a struggle for me was getting back to any kind of movement because I just really struggled with time. It was like, I don't have the time. I can't do it. There's literally not even a minute in the day, right? And you're That's a machine when it comes to your amazing <laughs> work. Yeah. Rini at GoZen is always creating truly amazing products. You're such an inspiration for me. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. So I get <laughs> not you. having the time. Yeah. yeah. So how I'm did you navigate you don't have to that? Pack all of these things in. Well, first of all, I think is changing that monologue and saying that I don't have the time. Well, I mean, even if you're able to move your body for 15 minutes in the 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 hours that you're up, even 15 minutes is going to make a difference. And so I'm like, I do have the time, right? I have the time. That is, that's what needs to happen. And I have the time. And then I'm like, okay, I have the time now. How am I actually going to get motivated? Right? So I think as always, a lot of times when we don't, it's inertia. Things at rest tend to stay at rest. I hadn't been to the gym for a couple of years and I was feeling very lethargic about getting out there. And so we try to fight those feelings and those thoughts with other thoughts, right? But those thoughts to begin with are tainted. <laughs> so it's like you're, you're trying to ram these other thoughts like, you should do it. I really don't feel like doing it. You should do it. 
when the best thing to do is take like a tiny bit of action, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and the research shows this, that action is 64% more effective than thinking when it comes to motivation, right? So if, even if you take a tiny action, so all I had to say to myself really was, I just need to show up at the gym. I'm not even making any other goal than walking through the door. That was it. I know that's a ridiculous goal, like walk through the door and then what if I walked no, back out? No, it's not ridiculous. It's amazing. Yeah. But getting, but getting myself there was most of the challenge, right? And then, I mean, I'm not going to lie. The first time I got back on, I, I love those, um, the Stairmaster machines that actually move, you know, like the steps move. So that was the first thing that I chose to do. And after like four minutes, I was like, oh my goodness, this is really hard. <laughs> but I started using this mantra that I use with kids when they're panicking, which is, it's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. Because my body was telling me to get off because it was so uncomfortable, right? But I just kept saying to myself, it's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. It's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. And so I ended up staying, I think it's the first time, it was like 10 minutes or something like that. And I felt... I had I felt so accomplished that I had actually met some sort of goal and then it just became momentum you know the ability to add movement back into my life so my goal for myself is really what I teach my kids with moving is we have to move our bodies you know whatever that form is so whether that be walking up and down the stairs or going to the park or going to the gym and moving our body has to be part of our day in some way, shape or form. And that's just made a big difference. I'm trying to go back to basics, basically. Moving my body and what yeah. I learned from you, eating real food, right? <laughs> One of the biggest things that I've learned from you, eating real food. Like, there's too many food rules. There's too many food rules that confuse me. So that's the food rule that I go with as well. And I learned that, I, I basically learned from you that whole approach um, of sort of focusing on, you know, the, the strengths rather than the weaknesses, going back to the strengths. So even with food, like focusing on the nourishing, beautiful foods, not so much on the villain foods. And then the sort of like a crowding out, like a beautiful crowding out that happens because you can't really eat that much. So once you really bring in this abundance of real food, the not so good stuff just kind of, you know, doesn't have as much place on your plate. Um, but anyway, I, I love, love that. We that. Can, <laughs> I love all the inspiration I get from you. And I'm so happy that that was inspiring for you. And gosh, guys, um, so much to ponder, so much to take action on, so many beautiful nuggets of wisdom. Rini, it has been absolutely a joy. Um, thank you for gracing us with your presence. And I am always inspired to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, you can check out, um, find Rini on the internet at gozen.com. Um, beautiful programs, really powerful interventions and inspiration for kids and parents um, dealing with anxiety and everything related to that. And I know Rini is working on a book. Maybe that's on the DL, but we will definitely <laughs> keep you posted. Um, lots of exciting things coming from Rini every day. So definitely check her out at gozen.com. And thank you again, Rini. Can't wait to have you back on the show. So much to discuss. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.